Chapter Three of Craddock Knoll: A Tale of the New Forest, Volume One, by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Chapter Three. The reason why Mrs. O'Gahan, generally so prompt and careful, though never very lucid, had neglected better precautions in a matter so important, was simply and solely this: Lady Knoll the delicate mother was dying it had been known ever since the birth that she had scarcely any chance of recovery and biddy loved her with all her warm heart and so did every one in the house who owned a heart that could love in the great anxiety all things were upside down none of the servants knew where to go for orders and few could act without them the housekeeper was all abroad house steward there was none Head butler Hogstaff cried in his pantry and wiped his eyes with his leathers, and as for the master of them all, Sir Craddock Knoll himself, he rarely left the darkened room, and when he did, he could not see well. A sweet, frail creature the young mother was, wedded too early, as happens here more often than we are aware of. Then, disappointed and grieving still more at her husband's disappointment, she had set her whole heart so long and so vainly upon prospective happiness that now it was come she had not the strength to do anything more than smile at it and smile she did very sweetly all the time she knew she was dying she felt so proud of those two fine boys and could not think how she had them ever so many times sir cradock hanging fondly over her wan sweet face ordered the little wretches away who would keep on coming to trouble her but every time she looked up at him with such a feeble glory and such a dash of humour you've got them at last and now you don't care a bit about them but oh please do for my sake every time her fading eyes followed them to the door so that the loving husband cold with the shadow of the coming void had to whisper bring them back put them here between us although he knew that she was dying he could not feel it yet the mind admitted that fearful truth but the heart repulsed it further as she sunk and further yet from his pleading gaze the closer to her side he crept the more he clasped her shadowy hands and raised her drooping neck the fonder grew the entreating words the whispers of the love time faint smiles that hoped to win her smile although they moved in tears and smile she did once more on earth through the ashy hue the shadow of the soul's wings fluttering when two fresh lives bought by her death were shown for the farewell to her and if it's wrong then she'll make it right thought the conscientious biddy i can take my oath on it she knowed the differ from the very first though nobody else couldn't see it barring the caps they was put in now if only that gossoon will consent to her see them once more and it can't hurt the poor darling and the blessing as comes from the death's gaze mrs o'gahan's doubts were ended by the entrance of the doctor a spare short man with a fiery face red hair and quick little eyes he was not more than thirty years old but knew his duties thoroughly nevertheless he would not have been there but for the sudden emergency 
He was now come to fetch the nurse, having observed that the poor mother's eyes were gleaming feebly, once and again, towards the door that led to the nursery, and at last she had tried to raise her hand and point in that direction. So in came Biddy, sobbing hard, with a babe on either arm, and she curtsied cleverly to Sir Craddock without disturbing the equipoise. But the mother's glance was not judicial, as poor Biddy had expected. Her heart and soul were far beyond rosettes and even titles. In one long, yearning look, she lingered on her newborn babes, then turned those hazy eyes in fondness to her kneeling husbands, then tried to pray, or blessed the three, and shivered twice, and died. For days and weeks Sir Craddock Knoll bore his life, but did not live. All his clear intellect and strong will, noble plans and useful labours, all his sense of truth and greatness, lay benumbed and frozen in the cold track of death. He could not bear to see his children. He would not even hear of them. They had robbed him of his loved one, and what good were they, little red things? Perhaps he would love them when they grew like their mother. Those were not his expressions, for he was proud and shy, but that was the form his thoughts would take, if they could take any. No wonder that he, for a time, was lost beyond the verge of reason, because that blow, which most of all stuns and defeats the upright man, had descended on him, the blow to the sense of justice. This a man of large mind feels often from his fellow men, never from his maker. But Sir Craddock was a man of intellect rather than of mind. To me a large mind seems to be strong intellect quickened with warm heart. Sir Craddock Knoll had plenty of intellect and plenty of heart as well, but he kept the two asunder. So much the better for getting on in the world, so much the worse for dealing with God. A man so constituted rarely wins, till overborne by trouble, that only knowledge which falls like genius where our father listeth. So the bereaved man measured justice by the ells and inches of this world. And it did seem very hard that he who had lived for twenty years from light youth up to the balanced age of forty, not only without harming any fellow mortal, but upon fair average, to do good in the world, it seemed, I say, it was, thought he, most unjust that such a man could not set his serious heart upon one little treasure without losing it the moment he had learned its value now with pride to spur sad memory bronze spurs to a marble horse he remembered how his lovely violet chose him from all others gallant suitors crowded round her for she was rich as well as beautiful but she quietly came from out them all for him, a man of twice her age, and he who had cared for none till then, and had begun to look on woman as a stubby bearded man looks back at the romance of his first lather. He first admired her grace and beauty, then her warmth of heart and wit, then, scorning all analysis, her own sweet self, and loved her. A few days after the funeral, he was walking sadly up and down in his lonely library, caring no whit for his once-loved books, for the news of the day, or his business, 
and listless to look at anything even the autumn sunset when the door was opened quietly and shyly through the shadows stole his schoolfellow of yore his truest friend john rosedew with this gentleman i take a very serious liberty but he never yet was known to resent a liberty taken honestly that however does not justify me john rosedew i intend to call him because he likes it best and so he would though ten times a bachelor of divinity a late vice-principal of his college and the present rector of nowelhurst formerly i did my best loving well the character to describe that simple-minded tender-hearted yeoman john huxtable of tossel's barton in the county of devon like his as like any two of nature's ever varied works were the native grain and staple of the reverend john rosedew beside those little inborn and indying variations which nature still insists on that she may know her sons apart those two genial britons differed both in mental and bodily endowments and through education in spite of that they were and are as like to one another as any two men can be who have no smallness in them small men run pretty much of a muchness as the calibre increases so the divergence multiplies farmer huxtable was no fool but having once learned to sign his name he had attained his maximum of literary development john rosedew on the other hand although a strong and well-built man who had pulled a good oar in his day was not in bulk and stature a match for hercules or milo unpretending gentle a lover of the truth easily content with others but never with himself even now at the age of forty he had not overcome the bashfulness and diffidence of a fine and sensitive nature and first-rate scholar as he was he would have lost his class at oxford solely through that shyness unless a kind examiner who saw his blushing agony had turned from some commonplace of sophocles to a glorious passage of pindar then carried away by the noble poet john rosedew forgot the schools the audience even the row of examiners and gave grand thoughts their grand expression breathing free as the winds of heaven nor till his voice began to falter from the high emotion and his heart beat fast though not from shame and the tears of genius touched by genius were difficult to check not till then knew he or guessed that every eye was fixed upon him that every heart was thrilling that even the stiff examiners bent forward like eager children and the young men in the gallery could scarcely keep from cheering then suddenly in the full sweep of magnificence he stopped like an eagle shot now the parson ruddy-cheeked with a lock of light brown hair astray upon his forehead and his pale blue eyes looking much as if he had just awoke and rubbed them came shyly and with deep embarrassment into the darkening room for days and days he had thought and thought but could not at all determine whether and when and how he ought to visit his ancient friend his own heart first suggested that he ought to go at once if only to show the bereaved one that still there were some to love him to this right impulse and the impulse of a heart like this 
could seldom be a wrong one, wrote counter-checks of worldly knowledge, such little as he had, and it seemed to many people strange and unaccountable that if Mr. Rosedew piqued himself upon anything whatever, it was not on his learning, his purity or benevolence, it was not on his gentle bearing or the chivalry of his soul, but on a fine acquirement whereof in all opinions, except indeed his own, he possessed no jot or tittle, a strictly disciplined and astute experience of the world. Now this supposed experience told him that it might seem coarse and forward to offer the hard grasp of friendship ere the soft clasp of love was cold, that he, as the clergyman of the parish, would appear to presume upon his office, that no proud man could ever bear to have his anguish pried into. These and many other misgivings and objections met his eager longings to help his dear old friend. Suddenly, and to his great relief, for he knew not how to begin, though he felt how and mistrusted it, the old friend turned upon him from his lonely pacing, and held out both his hands. Not a word was said by either. What they meant required no telling, or was told by silence. Long time they sat in the western window, John Rosedew keeping his eyes from sunset, which did not suit them then. At last he said, in a low voice, which it cost him much to find, What name, dear Craddock, for the younger babe, your own of course for the elder? No name, John, but his sweet mother's, unless you like to add his uncle's. John Rosedew was puzzled lamentably. He could not bear to worry his friend any more upon the subject, and yet it seemed to him sad, false concord, to christen a boy as Violet. But he argued that, in botanical fact, a Violet is male as well as female, and at such a time he could not think of thwarting a widower's yearnings, in spite of all his worldly knowledge. It never occurred to his simple mind that poor Sir Craddock meant the lady's maiden surname, which I believe was Inkledon. And yet he had suggestive precedent brought even then before him, for Sir Craddock Knowles' brother bore the name of Clayton, which name John Rosedew added now, and found relief in doing so. Thus it came to pass that the babe without Rosette was baptised as Violet Clayton, while the owner of the bauble received the name of Craddock, Craddock Knoll, now the ninth in lineal succession. The father was still too broken down to care about being present. Godfathers and godmothers made all their vows by proxy. Mrs. O'Gayan held the infants, and one of them cried, and the other laughed. The rosette was there in all its glory, and received a tidy sprinkle, and the wearer of it was, as usual, the one who took things easily. As the common children said who came to see the great ones loustering, the whole affair was rather like a white burying than a baptism. Nevertheless, the tenants and labourers moistened their semi-regenerate clay with many a fontful of good ale to ensure the success of the ceremony. End of chapter 3